This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. I fired that uh, CO2 supplying company from ever delivering CO2 to any Coors brewery. Also, the quality of CO2 improved immediately. Eventually, the beer improved and that rubber off note went away. CO2, among the ingredients, and I, I'm using the word ingredients, I, I'm not, don't like when somebody uses CO2 as utilities because steam, ammonia, glycol are utilities, but they never enter in intimate contact with beer. A lot of us find the tops of those tanks turning into big ice blocks, which then cause the end of your packaging day. Make sure that the first user is your carbonation because it's the one that is going to get the colder gas. This week on the show, we're taking a break from featuring WBC content. Back in July, a Master Brewers member wrote in requesting an episode about CO2 systems, CO2 quality, and best practices. Hey, Brian, ask and you shall receive. Today, you'll hear from four different brewers, plus the guy who teaches this topic during one of the Master Brewers two-week courses. Hi, I'm Mark Fisher. I'm Director of Operations for Deschutes Brewery in Bend, Oregon. Hi, I'm Jeff Carter. I am the Critical Systems Manager at Bell's Brewery in Galesburg, Michigan. This is Gabriel Dominguez. I'm with Pentair. I'm responsible for the CO2 system technical support. Hey, I'm Eric Meyer. I'm the brewmaster at Cahaba Brewing Company in Birmingham, Alabama. Hi, I'm Dave Thomas. I'm retired brewmaster from Coors for 32 years, and now I brew beer at a small brew pub called Dostal Alley Brewery in Central City, Colorado. I think we should probably start with the distinction between beverage-grade CO2 and food-grade CO2. 
What's the difference there? That's a great point because usually, and it's full of uh, the CO2 suppliers, they mix or they use a synonymous. But a food grade uh, is controlled by the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, and basically CO2 needs to meet some requirements that is not toxic, is not, it has no pathogens and things like that. So you will not get sick by consuming that CO2. But that's not good enough for beer, right? That is correct. Uh, if just give you an example. Uh, acetaldehyde, which is uh, accepted in a food grade all the way to 0.5, half a ppm. Uh, I can bet you that at those levels, nobody's going to get sick or poisoned with acetaldehyde, but a, a very savvy master brewer or very savvy consumer of your products will start detecting in your beer a slightly flavor and aroma to green apples. So uh, that's the reason beverage grade, uh, it's a, a specification for acetaldehyde, it's 0.2 ppms. A lot of people, they told me, hey, Gabriel, it's only between 0.5 to 0.2, it's only 0.3 ppms. No, it's 60% less acetaldehyde than at the food grade, for instance. And then we can extrapolate the same thing with uh, oxygen levels. Oxygen, we breathe it, it's not toxic, it's nice. Uh, in food grade, it's no big deal. But uh, if you got a lot of oxygen in, in your beer, you're going to have a skunky or, or oxidation and the shell life is going to be reduced. So my point is, if you're buying CO2 or recovering CO2, make sure that uh, you're going to ask and aim to having beverage grade, no food grade. Dave, you've got a pretty good CO2 quality horror story for us. <laughs> what happened? Well, um, for years, the brewery in Memphis, Tennessee, which is no longer a, a Coors brewery now, um, had an off flavor in their beer. Um, and it, it, I mean, for 20 years, it was a long time. They sent all kinds of people down there to try and resolve that. And uh, finally, just before my retirement, they sent me down there to take a look. And I, I started doing uh, cloud analysis of data, looking anywhere and everywhere. Uh, even the malt was blamed for a while. Of course, that wasn't true. <laughs> always is. Um, it always is. It's always the malt. Um, I started doing analysis, statistical analysis of uh, purchased CO2 delivery. And I found that one of the two suppliers that we were using at the time uh, statistically correlated um, some of their trailers, some of their delivery tr vehicles, statistically correlated when we saw this off flavor. And we saw the off flavor in two ways. One was a, a distilled water a bubbling analysis that we do um, that's really easy to do and is outlined in my, my article. Um, it, by the way, the article I wrote for Brewer and Distiller International in October of 2011, that covers this whole uh, problem. So we bubble the CO2 before offload uh, through distilled water, iced distilled water, and taste it. And then we'd get this rubbery, hot garden hose vinyl flavor in the water. And that correlated with the same off notes that would show up later in beer, sporadically, I might add. Um, so we started using the water as a, as a go-no-go, really, for offload uh, of purchased CO2. And uh, so I started looking at the results. And, and uh, when the flavor team got 
uh, funny flavors off the water, I started analyzing, well, where did that CO2 come from? Who delivered it? Uh, what kind of quality data did we have on it? And lo and behold, all were, the, Dave, were they taking those samples right off of the, the bulk tanks yeah. or were they getting, or just from the process piping or what? They were taking it right from the tank, uh, from, from the delivery tank, uh, delivery vessel before offload. So they had to pass flavor as well as uh, the, the long list of chemical analysis that they had to re- had to right. be done, and you can imagine a brewery that size had GC uh, mass spec, all kinds of techniques and tools to analyze the CO two. But everything seemed to be in specification, except for the off flavor. Um, so I identified many, uh, several uh, tanker numbers, actually individual vessels that correlated with this off flavor. And I sent countless number of uh, messages to the CO2 supplier at the time and uh, told them they couldn't use these tanks anymore because they had some kind of uh, contamination from the rubber gaskets or a cleaning, uh, improper cleaning of the tanks, the tankers themselves, uh, something. I didn't, that wasn't my job to look into that. That was their job. Um, it's it's important to know that the CO2 source was the same as the other company we were buying from at the time, big, and both these are multinational um, uh, gas suppliers. Uh, so even though the source was the same, the other company never had these off flavors that came into the beer and, and the water. So I knew it was something in the delivery vessels themselves, the tankers. And uh, I told them, you know, you better stop shipping. They kept trying to ship uh, to test our resolve, and we kept finding these off flavors. Um, So the rubber hose, vinyl, uh, hot garden hose, aroma and flavor uh, was pinpointed to something as simple as just delivering the CO2 to the brewery. Um, eventually, after uh, I worked on this for about a year, I fired that uh, CO2 supplying company from ever delivering CO2 to any Coors brewery because they wouldn't listen to the brewer's uh, flavor flavor pro- uh, profile panel on uh, the off flavor. And uh, we rewrote the contract so that the other supplier got got the, got the job. That's unbelievable. How much time would you say was wasted hunting this down? I mean, it sounds like you weren't the first person to go yeah. after this. Oh, years and years. Uh, teams, uh, like I said, they were looking at malt. They were looking at yeast. They were looking at all kinds of uh, quality issues uh, to figure out what, where this hot vinyl uh, flavor would come from. And uh, I just, wow, you know, I just dogged it through and I thought, okay, I, I'm going to... Uh, one piece of advice to people doing root cause analysis of things like this is don't assume anything. So I didn't assume that even though the CO2 that was purchased was within chemical spec, I didn't assume that it couldn't be the source of the, of the off flavor. And uh, the long and short of it was after we fired that CO2 supplier for not basically not listening to us, um, the quality of, the uh, 
offloaded quality of CO2 improved immediately. Eventually, the beer improved, and that rubber off note went away. Um, and in wow. fact, uh, <laughs> that the beer from Memphis at the time was equal to or better than all the beer that we were producing by at, in Golden and Shenandoah at the time, too, because of that one problem. It was very severe, the off flavor, and uh, Memphis quality improved dramatically after that. That's something else. Well, Dave, you've got in your article, you mentioned a couple of methods, uh, one for evaluating CO2 flavor, as well as another for screening for the presence of oil. Right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about those? Because like you said, they're pretty simple methods that I think a lot of other folks could sure. utilize. Sure. Um, yeah. For looking at uh, oil in the CO2, it's a simple uh, matter of getting a, uh, taking a nylon bag and venting some of the CO2 from a cylinder as small as a, a tank cylinder or anything or a big uh, tank or delivery vessel uh, into a, a nylon bag um, and that becomes dry ice as you know when it expands um, and then you just take a cotton swab and um, drop that um, potentially contaminated cotton ball into uh, into beer and, uh, you know, you do a control also to make sure uh, you do a clean cotton ball into another beer and you compare the two. And if the foam goes down at all, uh, chances are it's from oil in the delivered CO2. Um, so it's a makes sense. It's a real uh, rugged test. Even the operators do it themselves and uh, can tell go or no go whether it's got oil in it. All right. Let's hear about the flavor method. It's a little more involved. Uh, you have to have what what we use is a, a Dreschle type bottle, which has a which is an Erlenmeyer flask that's fitted with uh, ground ground glass fittings, so that you can bubble uh, CO two down through into the liquid in the flask. And we use the iced distilled water. So you, you just carry a five gallon bucket with you or a you know one gallon bucket with you with ice in it ice and water in it and uh you use distilled water and you bubble bubble the co2 from the again from the small cylinder or from the large delivery vessel down into this 250 milliliter bottle and you bubble till you get about five volumes of co2 into the bottom of the flask so you figure out what size your flask is you figure out uh, what your rate is and just bubble for a couple minutes uh, into the into the distilled water. Uh, cover the bottle, take it apart. Cover the bottle. Uh, look at it for color and turbidity. Off uh, funny little things that might come out, and then pour it into your beer tasting glasses, your brandy sif snifter glasses, or whatever, um, and evaluate for off flavor. And our Flavor panelist, I wasn't very good at it, but she was, Teresa Charles was really good at it in Memphis, uh, of picking up this off flavor of uh, hot vinyl in the in the water in that case. And and she would reject whole loads of, of CO2 based on that. Dave, so what do you recommend brewers do to safeguard against poor CO2 quality so they can avoid huge headaches like the one you experienced in Memphis? Uh, first and foremost is, you know, uh, don't take the supplier's word for it. Um, you know, you should know the source of the CO2, uh, how they're how they're 
capturing it, how they're cleaning it, and how they're delivering it to you. So uh, start asking a bunch of questions about where that CO2 is coming from. Um, if any brewer can request uh, both a certificate of conformance and a certificate of analysis. And conformance just says they're following um, uh, the standards of, of capture and cleaning before the uh, tankers are loaded or the bottles are loaded. Uh, certificate of analysis means that that particular load that was captured and cleaned um, was actually analyzed and here's the here's the data on that and that tells you whether uh, first and foremost that you don't have any really of the really nasty things that could be in co2 like benzene or acetaldehyde or methane and dimethyl sulfide you can look at those kinds of things uh, but also, again, that they're looking closely at their CO2 quality when they're loading. Most delivered CO2 is in liquid form. Why is that and what considerations should brewers be aware of in regards to pipe and tank specifications for handling liquid CO2? Another good question. 100% of breweries in the world, they use a CO2 in a vapor or gas phase. They don't need liquid. Unfortunately, uh, liquefying CO2 is a necessary evil for storage and transportation because when you liquefy 40, uh, at, at certain conditions, 40 gallons of vapor or gas CO2, you turn it into one gallon of liquid. So it's cheaper to carry in a road tanker or to storage, uh, keeping uh, the CO2 liquefied. So that being said, Please be aware that uh, whatever you have in your tank, it's a uh, liquefied gas under pressure and uh, very low temperature. That uh, means that uh, you need to be aware of you got a leak of a uh, liquid CO2. It's going to turn into dry ice at the moment it goes into the atmospheric pressure. And temperature is going to be of the dry ice minus 110 degrees Fahrenheit, which you can get born. So... Uh, handling CO2, additionally, uh, the, the, the tanks uh, uh, operate between 250 all the way to 300. So it's a risky uh, tank if you don't pay attention. So I always invite uh, brewers to be careful with the forklift or something that is in transit because if you hit the tank, we might end up in trouble. How about the materials for for um, for pipes and tanks? Does that need to be stainless steel, or can it be something different? Or what's what's the best practice there? Uh, tanks, because they're going to be a hot pressure and a low temperature. You you can have two options. You can opt for a stainless steel three hundred four L, which is rather expensive. But uh, otherwise, you can use the uh, high manganese uh, carbon steel which is, has a, co a code SA-612, which basically uh, is like a little bit of Play-Doh. It's plastic. When you cool down metals, uh, it, they become brittle, you know, like glass, easy to break. But uh, this high manganese uh, carbon steel has the property of keeping that elasticity and pressure resistance at very low temperature. So long story short, for tanks, it's your choice. Uh, you don't need to invest in a, uh, in a 
very expensive stainless steel storage tank. There are some countries where the quality of the CO2 is low and they have a lot of oxygen or, or moisture in the product. So in that case, we want a stainless steel tank because you don't want roasting and metallic flavor in your beer. But in the United States and Canada, we don't have that issue, so you don't need a stainless steel tank. Regarding piping, all the way uh, outside the tank, you can go to Carmel Steel as well, but we have a protocol of sanitation and a protocol of uh, uh, not only that, looks when you enter your brewery and your, and your bottling hole, we switch to stainless steel. Especially if you're going to run your CO2 line very cold, because usually it's going to be frost covered with the dew that is getting from the atmosphere. And if you don't have stainless steel piping, you're going to start having rust issues. So, again, long story short, piping, stainless steel is recommended, but not for storage tank. Now, obviously, we're not distributing liquid CO2 around the average brewery. What are the various possibilities for converting delivered liquid CO2 into gas? Any CO2 supplier uh, needed to invest 125 BTUs of energy or the refrigeration to liquefy each pound of CO2. So, uh, in order to vaporize, you need to apply 100, the reverse uh, process, 125 BTUs. Uh, there's people that are, they just get that heat from the air. It's a rather cheap way to do it. You vaporize a liquid, you just put in uh, exposure in, in a serpentine or, or a heat exchanger, which is getting uh, air. But uh, you're losing the refrigerant capabilities that are that liquid. Somebody pay a fortune in, in energy, so you should take advantage of that. It will not cost you more. So uh, another option is cooling water or cooling a uh, glycol solution. Uh, your uh, return warm glycol, which is at 30 degrees, 32 degrees, uh, it's it must be called for some applications, but for the CO2, it's extremely warm because inside the tank, liquid CO2, it's around minus 10, minus 8 degrees Fahrenheit. So when you got a glycol at 30 degrees and you put it in contact in, in a heat exchanger with liquid CO2, the liquid CO2 is going to boil off. It's going to change phase. At the very same moment, you're going to be cooling your glycol. And then your glycol is coming out of that vaporizer, already chilled which is a nice uh, way to save energy because the moment it enters your chiller, because remember, this is the return line, uh, your, your chiller is going to detect that uh, the glycol is cold, so the compressor, it will not run. So there's a lot of savings there. So, But uh, in some cases, uh, just the piping of glycol is too expensive to, to run because your chiller is in the other side of the brewery. In that case, there's no other way that are going to either water, if you have a cooling tower there, or using uh, the ambient air. The cooling water, I, I'm a little bit concerned sometimes because if you don't pay attention, you may have problems with the water freezing inside because the CO2 is too cold. So that is the reason it's my choice is glycol, which is a really, really energy savings device, or playing safe, uh, the ambient heated vaporizers. Unfortunately, that's not a lot of savings, actually just cooling air. Mark, uh, let's hear from you. Several brewers have told me uh, that they made changes to their own system after hearing about a major headache at the shoots last year. Why don't you tell us what happened? Yeah, I guess my, my big warning is that the CO2 you purchase does have hydrocarbons in it. 
And those hydrocarbons will build up in the liquid in the tank. And so the situation we had is we were uh, using a resistive vaporizer that comes with the tank to heat uh, the CO2 up and then take vapor off the top of the tank. As a energy savings project, we installed a vaporizer, a two-stage vaporizer inside the brewery using glycol and the first stage, which uh, gave us 10 tons of free cooling and a second stage using ambient warm air to heat the uh, CO2, which gave us some free air conditioning. But when we switched that system over, we started drawing from the bottom of the tank out of the liquid and there uh the there was buildup of hydrocarbons that was that got into the distribution system and we were able to catch it and uh we had filtrations at the end point end use points but we had to uh scour our whole piping system to get rid of this oily substance that came from the co2 uh to clean out the system Wow, and that's just from years of it accumulating in that in the in the liquid over over lots of deliveries, right? That's correct. It only it's only parts per million, but it builds up and it's, it's got nowhere to go. And the same is the reverse true if you're drawing from the bottom of the tank, uh, the hydrocarbons will build up in the vapor side of the tank. Wow, that's good to know. Um, Anything else you'd like to talk about in regards to that scenario or just your um, your upgrade projects uh, in general? Um, did it, you know, I, I, it sounds pretty, sounds like a pretty good situation. The, the benefits you got out of the new system once you got it um, running the way you wanted it to, huh? Yeah, we, I mean, the we, reason we did it is we were actually running out of capacity on the resistive vaporizer. It was only a 24 kilowatt unit and it was not able to keep up with the instantaneous demand. So we installed the uh, the glycol vaporizer and then the air vaporizer, and the whole project cost about ninety thousand dollars, and it saves us about twenty thousand a year. Not a great payback, but it also gives us uh, free some free cooling and some free air conditioning. So all in all, we believe it was a good project to do. Awesome. Um, okay, Jeff, uh, you were doing an installation almost identical to Mark's project at the Shoots when you heard about the issues they had. Uh, what action did you guys take? Yeah, we were uh, doing a very similar project, probably a couple months behind where Mark was with uh, his system. And we had learned about the problems they were having. So we very quickly um, stepped back from our project for a minute and looked at um, what we wanted to do to make sure that we did not have similar issues upon startup of our new vaporizer. Um, so for us, we put added to the project some coalescing filters um, that sit in the CO2 line just to make sure that if there is any hydrocarbons in the CO2 that we will filter them out before they come into the building and go into the process. And are those, fil- are those filters at the end, end use or is it a, a bigger filter further upstream or how does that work? Um, we put filters in um, right where the CO2 line comes into the building. So it's at the beginning of the system. So therefore, if there is hydrocarbons, we don't get them through our piping. Um, we size them. There's two of them. They run in parallel, but they're sized so that either one can handle the demand so that when it comes time to do maintenance on it, we could shut one down and still continue um, our CO2 usage. 
Pretty cool. Um, we'll come back to you for more in just a second. Gabriel, do you want to talk to us a little bit about um, filtration and sort of, you know, what level of filtration uh, even very small breweries should be using on their delivered CO2? Of course, but uh, is that okay with you, John? I would like to comment with, to Jeff and Mark something that uh, uh, perhaps I didn't mention when I was explaining the difference between beverage and food grade that it could be very important for them to be aware. Beverage grade uh, CO2 also requires that uh, the liquid hoses used from the road tanker or the supplier of CO2 into your tank needs to be metallic, needs to be braided. It cannot be used rubber hoses. Why? Liquid CO2 is a solvent. It's a solvent as strong as XN. Obviously, it's not toxic, but it's a solvent. And what is happening is bleaching out the rubber moving from the road tanker into your tanks. More than once, when we test the bottom of a tank and we drain it, we got a, like an oily residue, viscous and sticky, and we assume it's oil hydrocarbons. But uh, most of the time, it's liquid rubber for many years of beer bleaching tanks. So please, uh, Jeff and, and, and Mark, make sure that uh, your supplier is using the right and, and the International Society of Beverage Technology, ISBT, which is the the chamber that basically gives the guidelines for beverage grade is not only from the specification, but also the handling of the product. So make sure that uh, your supplier uses the right hoses. Otherwise, uh, what you're uh, putting in, in there, you're going to be having uh, liquid rubber. Hydrocarbon is also a possibility if they have problems with the compressors or something like that. But uh, I'm afraid that uh, most likely it's going to be liquid rubber which is it's also bad. You don't want that in your product. But the problem with that is, in some cases, coalescer filters for liquid rubber are not as effective and than, for instance, with oils or hydrocarbons. So in that case, uh, we put what is called a safeguard bed uh, and uh, recommended to do it in liquid, in vapor phase, downstream the vaporizer, immediately coming out of the vaporizer because we need to take advantage of the high pressure. A safeguard bed is activated carbon that you replace once a year, a certain volume depending on the consumption, and then you rem remove everything, oily, sticky, whatever, because not only uh, other causing impurities, but uh, any possibility or oils or uh, liquid rubber that uh, you may take that. But here is the thing. That's a safeguard. If your supplier don't raise the bar and improve the, the delivery equipment, you're going to have an issue. And I'm sorry for, for diverting the conversation, but I think it was important for you to be aware. No, I think that's a, a great point. Um, so what level of filtration uh, do you recommend, Gabriel, for the very smallest of breweries? So, you know, obviously there's there's not that many Deschutes and Bells out there. So how about all these small craft brewers that are um, just working with delivered CO2? Um, hopefully they're getting beverage grade. What, what type of filtration should they be looking at? Uh, if you can use just a, a small combination of coalescent, which is not expensive, but a coalescent is going to give you of, of, of a very crude, possibility oil combination but uh, downstream that please make you any of the canister it's rather easy in amazon or in, in home depot any that are, runs at 300 psi any case uh, I, I i i prefer uh, cotton because you can remove that and uh, it's not toxic or you can trash it there and, and replace it once a month and it's rather cheap every cartridge 
cost $20, $25. That will be my suggestion for a small brewery. If you have the money, like you mentioned, for, for, uh, for the big ones, let's go to the uh, activated carbon bed because in that case, you don't need to be changing every month, once a month, a cartridge. You just make sure that uh, when you shut down once a year, you replace the, the 200 or 400 pounds of carbon, depending on the size of the filter that you're going to have that. All right, great. And Gabriel, just one more question before we get back to Jeff. Um, I know you already talked about maintaining line pressure in the in the delivery system, but do you ever recommend putting um, check valves or backflow preventers uh, at the point of use so that there's no possibility of, of pushing liquid back into the system or something like that? Uh, good point. Uh, you, and, and I didn't recommend that because typically, typically the fillers comes with a check valve. But uh, if for any particular reason your system don't, don't have it, yes, you need to put it. That is correct. So it's a, a unidirectional valve that only allows uh, any fluid coming from your tank into the filler, but another way around. Because uh, if you're having your, your, your pipeline and only 7 PSI and your carbonator is running at uh, 15 or 20 PSI, most likely you're going to have uh, carbonated water coming back to the tank. So that is the reason uh, the check is very smart uh, uh, solution. You can buy it additionally if your device it has not already included. I've uh, I've put a lot of the cheap little like nylon ones in um, braided tubing at the point of use in small breweries several times, but I've yet to find one that... Um, that worked really well, but also allowed a high enough flow rate. Usually they restrict the flow rate down pretty good. So if you hear, if you hear of one, somebody let me know. Um, okay. Uh, Jeff, let's go back to you. Um, I wanted to find out what else you guys learned from your installation. Well, one of the key things we learned from our installation is um, before we installed our uh, glycol vaporizer, we really didn't have, other than tank volume, any way to track usage of our CO2. We didn't have any flow meters inside the building. Um, and we learned that we are using more CO2 for purges than we thought we were. Um, we now have a flow meter that comes in, and our old setup was designed to deliver about 1,400 pounds of vapor per hour. They were electric vaporizers. They, again, came with the tank. Um, and the vaporizer we put in was capable of doing up to 3,000 pounds per hour, which we thought was going to be really good for what we needed because we're doubling our capacity and everything. Um, it turns out that occasionally when we try to purge multiple tanks at once, um, we were going over that 3,000 pounds per hour limit for short periods of time. Um, so our daily usage wasn't exceeding anywhere near that limit, but for like an hour, we would find that we would be using 3,500 pounds an hour um, and we did not expect to see that right away. So one other thing we did was um, the, we learned that our 3,000 pound per hour vaporizer will actually be slightly more efficient if we lower the pressure of our CO2 receiver. Um, it used to run at about 300 PSIG. Uh, we lowered it down to 215 PSIG, which is lower than most people will run um, their CO2 receiver tanks. Um, that did create some opportunities for us. Uh, our reliquification system on the, the tank. Um, so if we don't use CO2 for a period of time, the pressure in the tank will build. And there's a refrigeration loop that will lower the pressure of the tank so we don't, you know, pop a safety relief. 
And that really wasn't designed to operate the temperatures we were trying to operate it at. So it, we learned that that was going to be a little less efficient. Um, but still, by lowering the pressure in that tank, we gained delta T between the liquid CO2 and the glycol that we were using to vaporize it and made the vaporizer more efficient. All right. That's pretty cool. Um, okay, Eric, we haven't heard from you yet. You've dealt with the transition from a small 450-pound system to a six-ton tank. Let's hear about your growing pains because there's probably a lot of other small brewers who might benefit from that knowledge at some point. How has your CO2 supply system evolved? Well, uh, we started as a uh, three-barrel brew house and utilizing that 450-pound CO2 tank, um, kind of following the path of all the other local breweries around us. And uh, it, it seemed to work out well. Uh, they make a lot of promises that this thing will be able to keep up with your with your demand. However, a lot of us find the tops of those tanks turning into big ice blocks, which then cause the end of your packaging day quickly. Um, so you know you work you find your way to work around those kind of uh, processes that that you know play out. But for us, you know, we moved from the three barrel brew house to a thirty barrel brew house and started going through the process of you know, needing a larger tank, knowing that uh, setting up a lot of these either 450s or 750 pound systems in series was not going to be able to do it. Um, so we were able to find a bulk supplier, uh, which saved us a, a lot of money, um, you know, on the per pound rate and the rental rate of the tanks. Um, but once you start going through that, you know, some of the biggest issues that I think a lot of small brewers miss uh, is, you know, the, the contracts that you start signing with these CO2 suppliers um, are, are, are difficult. Um, you know, they're, they're simply written out, but there's a lot of things that are missed. And uh, we ran into a lot of those. Um, as you start working through the, the six ton tank and then thinking about the piping system and how you're going to move this uh, vaporized gas through the brewery, you know, you just, you have to try to find the information that's out there and there's just limited, limited amount of information that's readily available Gabriel, can you give us some ranges for how much CO2 breweries typically use? Well, that that depends uh, of the efficiency of, uh, of the brewery, but uh, I'm going to use European standards, I'm sorry, hectoliter instead of beer barrels, but uh, they can use as low as only uh, two, two kilograms or uh, 4.4 pounds per every hectoliter of final products. But I have seen uh, some people that are, they don't have the controls and measurements or the flow meters, and they can go all the way to uh, 10 or 11 uh, kilograms of CO2 per hectoliter, which is huge gap. We were able to cut our per pound cost down on CO2 uh, almost 75% over what we were paying initially out of the gate. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up 
Yeast brakes, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Brewer Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This is the part where I usually tell you what's on the Master Brewer's calendar. Well, if you're serious about your career in brewing, there's only one thing that should be on your calendar right now, the World Brewing Congress. It's happening right now. And if you're not registered, then why are you even listening to this? You've probably heard of or even attended one of the famous two-week courses that Master Brewers puts on each year in Madison. Well, those classes will be all virtual this year, which means you can now get the same education without spending money to travel and while taking advantage of 45% off course tuition. The Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins October 11th, and the Brewing and Malting Science course starts October 25th. The Master Brewers Podcast Working Group still needs representation from a few more districts. Look for details in the Master Brewers Communicator or go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group. Back to the show. Eric, anything else you want to um, mention in regards to growing pains that small brewers might face? I think that there's probably a lot more people that can, you know, uh, benefit from um, from stories you might have. I mean, it's cool to hear about glycol vaporizers at, at um, the shoots and bells, but you know, the average small brew pub's not going to do that. So, (laughs) right. Yeah. I mean, those are, those are great stories. And the, uh, the, the couple things that I would, I would advise is one, uh, reach out to a lot of vendors, reach out to a lot of your local breweries um, throughout your region. A lot of us believe there's, there are only one supplier. There is only one supplier. However, there are multiples. Uh, we were able to cut our per pound cost down on CO2 uh, almost 75% over what we were paying initially out of the gate, which is a huge savings for a for a brewery. Uh, we were also able to drop our tank rental, our tank rental on our 450 and our tank rental on our six ton unit are almost equal with each other. So, you know, there's a lot of savings as you grow uh, the ability to to really reach out to vendors and work with them, but also know that there are multiples and make sure that you are, you know, in the same ballpark. The other thing is uh, with even these bulk tanks that we stepped into, uh, we've had a bulk tank now just over four years and we were in the process of renegotiating our lease, which was a five-year lease. And you have to make sure you do that 12 months prior to your lease expiring. Again, these are, these are small things. A lot of small brewers, you get down, you start making the beer, you start enjoying the business. 
and you forget to, your contract is about to be renewed 12 months prior to your expiration date. So being aware of those, but then also reading the fine print and not making assumptions. We made the assumption that when our lease was over, that this tank would be removed from our property. We paid our lease. We've, we've done our contract um, obligations and you know we found a better supplier. Well, that's not the case. The, the case of that tank being removed is on the cost of the brewery. Again, it was in our contract. Hopefully, it's not in everyone else's. So that was going to be a ten dollars or $12,000 expense for us just to swap suppliers. Uh, so the biggest thing that I, I can add to all of this is please read your contracts, reread them, make notes, ask a lot of questions, and make sure that the answers are in writing just so that you don't get caught with a $10,000 bill just because you want to save another couple pennies or get some better service from another vendor. Gabriel, how do you recommend small breweries approach contracts with industrial gas suppliers? What what can they do to ensure vendors are delivering the quality needed for beer? I, I, I like what Eric just mentioned. Uh, those uh, those contracts, unfortunately, they are all biased, all in one-sided to the supplier. So make sure uh, two points that you're going to look. The quality, that uh, the term, it's beverage grade, never food grade. Secondly, uh, and now, I have a lot of friends, brewers friends that are these days are complaining that their contract has a clause for force majeure. And right now with the COVID-19, uh, the big companies are telling you, I'm sorry, but because of the COVID-19, I'm going to implore the force majeure so you will not be supplying CO2 this month. And you cannot do it about, about it, anything about it. So uh, take Make sure about the uh, force majeure clause. Secondly, it's uh, any kind of penalties. Uh, I know a friend that has switched vendors. The, the new supplier pay for the removal of the tank. The, the 15 or $20,000 for the removal of the tank. The new supplier put the new the, their tank and they start supplying. But then the old supplier start billing or invoicing monthly to this uh, friend of mine and when he read his contract uh, the contract that he signed it has a clause of take or pay if you cancel before the time or, or you don't consume a minimum volume per month the industrial gas company is entitled to charge you the difference so long story short when you review a contract make sure that the quality is beverage grade secondly what are the clauses for force majeure uh, before you sign it, once you sign it, you're in trouble. And last time, what are be the contingency? Are you forced to a certain volume or certain amount per year? Because that is also the trick. Uh, you got a, let's say, certain cents per pound of CO2. You're going to have this much price. But there's a fine print that says, as long as you consume more than 1,000, blah, 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 per month or per year. So be careful with that. I just wanted to say there's uh, other opportunities to save uh, the CO2 that you're using to reduce your consumption. So we got curtailed uh, during uh, the March-April period. And so we looked at ways of saving CO2. And one thing we did was when we're CIPing and SIPing our bright tanks, we were able to do it under pressure and avoid purging the tanks. And just by doing that on an annual basis, it saves us about $30,000 in CO2 costs. 
a year. Wow, that's not nothing. Additionally to that, uh, I, I heard that are people that are there moving into try to maximize the acid cycle instead of the alkaline cycles, also reduce the consumption of CO2 because you need to you don't need to vent. Uh, when 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 you're running caustic soda or any al alkali, uh, you need to make sure that there is no CO2 because you don't want to collapse the tank. But uh, that's a good point. Uh, thank you for the suggestion. But uh, that's right. If you tend to have CIP as long as possible for the acid phase, you also going to be safe CO2 by not purging tanks. Okay, I want to get into the subject of CO2 recovery. How big does a brewery need to be before CO2 recovery begins to make sense? I'm, I'm going to be direct in this answer. It's not size what is important to choosing CO2. It's how much of CO2 you're spending or investing per year. Just, uh, Eric just mentioned that uh, they save 70% uh, right now just for switching uh, kind of supply. So what I'm trying to, to tell you is there has been a small breweries, for instance, Hawaii, that are only 40,000 bar uh, barrels per year, that are they needed to buy a, C a CO2 plant because they were spending a fortune in CO2. A small CO2 plant, the smallest ones between tanks, civil work, installation, is going to cost you close to half a million dollars. So you can be, you might not believe it, but are there small breweries that are they pay a quarter or two hundred a quarter of a million to two hundred thousand uh, per year CO2 because they're loc uh, located in a very remote part of the USA or Canada? For those guys, the, the size is not important as how much they invest. I know a couple of breweries in Texas that are, they brew more than three quarters of a million barrels per year, and they still don't recover CO2 because in Texas, the CO2 is dirt cheap. It's less than $70 per ton. That are, there's no way to justify the CO2. So long story short, gentlemen, the size uh, of your brewery is not as important as how much you pay uh, 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 buying CO2 per year that is going to justify uh, the investment of a CO2 recovery plan. Uh, Gabriel, for those brewers who are who are recovering CO2 from fermentation, what else are they likely to find in that gas? So he, here is the thing. Uh, when you're uh, recovering CO2 besides saving in not purchase if portion or all the CO2, you also will have some benefits like odor control. I have seen uh, breweries that are there looking for a CO2 recovery, not because the CO2 is too expensive, it's because now they're surrounded with people. When they moved, there was a cornfield. Now they have houses and the neighbors are being hostile because of the smells or the noise. So recovering from your fermenters, you're going to have less emissions, but those emissions are going to be ended up in, in, in your CO2. Uh, for instance, uh, there are states like California, California, uh, Colorado and Virginia, perhaps another one that I miss in my memory, that they have a very strict control of VOC or volatile organic compounds emissions. And among those VOCs, we have ethanol that comes in, in, as a vapor comes with the CO2 from fermentation. So in many cases, you cannot or you shouldn't recover CO2 because there's no payback because of the price of your CO2 or how much you spend, but uh, perhaps you need to scrub it, wash it uh, before releasing it into the atmosphere, having a phone trap, having a scrubber in order to uh, to make sure that uh, you're not emitting BOC or some aromas because of your neighbors or because the state regulation. 
How, how common is it for oxygen to end up in recovered CO2 versus delivered CO2? It's basically, it's easier to have lower CO2 in your recovery than a, a, and your purchase CO2. Let, let me explain you why. Even though the CO2 from your uh, supplier in the plant comes with only, I'm going to use a number, 5 ppm of oxygen, if the operators don't pay attention, the moment they load the road tanker and they transfer all the air and moisture that it's uh, in the hose, you're going to move that air inside your road tanker. And remember, they do several trips per day, per month, so the oxygen inside those road tankers are building up. When you recover CO2, you don't have that transferring because you have from directly from your CO2 recovery inside your, uh, your storage tank and then to consumption. So typically recovering CO2 gives you the peace of mind that you have, you will have lower oxygen levels than buying CO2. That's a, as a typical assumption. But if you're having issues uh, with the quality of the oxygen in your CO2, please pay attention to the, 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 the procedure that uh, is doing your operator. They should connect both hoses. They should purge and drain. But uh, sometimes when they're in the rush and they don't want to waste 10 or, or 15 minutes purging and venting, they connect it and they just start supplying and all the air, dust, and oxygen that is inside that hoses ended up inside your uh, storage tank. All right, Gabriel, we're tackling this topic today because a Master Brewers member whose brewery makes around 2,500 barrels per year wrote in asking for some advice. He's about to upgrade his CO2 supply tanks, runs, regulators, etc., and he wants to hear about best practices for CO2 piping. He also wants to know how to calculate both total pounds and SCFM requirements for his brewery. Could you walk us through an example of that? I'm going to start with something that has, uh, sounds obvious, but uh, uh, I have seen a lot of this mistake in, uh, in brewers that are, once they finish the consumption, carbonation or blanketing or the use of CO2, they just uh, close the valve of the tank and allowing uh, the piping to empty, which is a problem because once the pipe is empty and it's cold, usually it's very cold because the CO2 is colder than usually than ambient air, you're going to trap moisture inside uh, your piping and oxygen as well because from the air. And then when you start consuming, all that air and moisture that is trapped in your piping is going to be entering your process and you don't want that. So my first uh, best practice or recommendation would be make sure that you always keep 3 to 5 PSI positive pressure of CO2 in your pipe. And obviously you have gauges. Uh, to, to, to measure the pressure all over the line because if you, for instance, shut down your operation during the weekend, your fillers, and, and you keep the lines loaded with 5 PSI of uh, pressure of CO2, and on Monday you show up that, uh, that uh, uh, the pressure is zero, well, you know that there's a leak there. So having pressurized uh, your lines with a small amount, I'm talking about three to five, will assure that you're going to have a positive pressure preventing moisture, dust, dirt, and oxygen intake in your line, which we need to be very careful with quality. There's no point in paying a fortune for having beverage gray low oxygen CO2 when you might be picking up oxygen through your piping because of poor practices. So that will be the, the best one. Keep your lines pressurized a little bit 
uh, unless you're going to CIP or do a major maintenance, you can empty. But uh, before you start, you need to flush it with, with, with CO2. Or, or if you don't have CO2 or cheap, you can use nitrogen as well, but you need to flush it from moisture and oxygen. Second point, uh, if you're planning to, to, to use a, or upgrade your, your, your piping and your storage and your capacity, let's play it safe. Depending on the states, it's, it's not the same thing being in Hawaii, Alaska, or, or in Texas, where the delivery of the CO2 is going to take, a, a, in, in one case, 10 days, and another case is going to be only 48 hours. You pick up the phone and you have the, the road tanker or the, this, in 48 hours. So you need to have an inventory uh, that is going to give you at least double the, the typical average time uh, of delivery. If you have a, a typically you supply it takes two days to arrive with a new load of CO2, you should have a minimum inventory that at least four days. Why? CO2 among the ingredients, and I, I'm using the word ingredients, I, I'm not don't like when somebody uses CO2 as utilities because steam, ammonia, glycol are utilities, but they never enter in intimate contact with beer. CO2 is an ingredient rather cheap compared with others, with hops or malt, but if you don't have it, you will have no carbonation, you will have no blanketing. So it's better to pay a little bit more for additional inventory, having four days there. I'm, I'm talking about in the case of the takes two days, but in, in case of, for instance, Hawaii, that it takes 10 days, you need 20 days of inventory over there just to be, play safe. And then uh, regarding the, the, the capacity, uh, let me tell you the following rule when I uh, estimate the consumption. We set up which is the carbonation level that we're going to reach, and I'm going to use a common number, which is perhaps a little bit higher, but uh, that's fine three volumes uh, of CO2 per volume of uh, beer or ale. That equals to 5.88 grams per liter. Grams of CO2 per liter of beer. So, again, this is my apologies for using international European units, but uh, it will be easy the conversion there later. If you're going to carbonate 1,000 uh, hectoliters or beer bar barrels just need to divide it by 117 then you multiply by 5.88 and you have the grams that uh, uh, you're gonna need for carbonation typically carbonation should consume 60 percent of your total overage consumption the rest of the additional 40 percent will be for blanketing purging unless you do something wrong. So if you determine when, when you multiply the grams for the volume that uh, you're going to need, let's say, 1,000 pounds uh, per month of CO2, you know that uh, that's, a, that's the 60% of your consumption. You divide that by 0.6 and you're going to have the total so you can forecast how much is the CO2 that uh, you will purchase. Compare that with your actual invoices to see how efficient you are. And it could be as simple that perhaps you're carbonating too hot and you're consuming uh, your carbonation efficiency is very low. Instead of consuming 5.88, you're consuming 9 grams per liter. That's an option. 
or that uh, uh, the way when you're transferring BBTs, you're purging uh, the wrong way and you're, gas you're, you're, you're expensing or spending more CO2. So, but uh, that's a, a good start point. Uh, uh, the 0.4 it's and the point, point 0.6, point 0.4 for carbonation, point 0.6 for, I'm sorry, point 0.6 for carbonation, point 0.4 for the balance. It's a nice rule of thumb to start with. Okay. And that listener with the 2,500 barrel brewery, if he just wants to determine, you know, the draw he would need to purge, say, a 40 barrel bright tank, how, how can he do that? The, 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 the important is uh, uh, the, the headspace. Uh, you start with a minimum headspace. I don't know, it's 10% of, of that uh, volume or it's uh, 50%. So the difference between one, one uh, initial volume and, and the volume, it's what it's need to be purged. But here's the thing. We need to be, we need to be savvy. Uh, typically, a lot of brewers, they bend that CO2 to to the atmosphere and remember uh, usually th uh, that tank is pressurized to seven to eight so the tricky part is you don't want to be uh, consuming that volume otherwise every time you empty a tank let's say a 40 barrels tank you're going to consume 40 barrels of, 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 of co2 vapor if you just bent it so we need to play smart and send them back to the other tank and just replacing the gas chamber with liquid chamber. You're going to reach a point that you need to vent it, but uh, at least make sure that you use the gas three or four cycles before you vent it. Not every cycle you're going to be venting, otherwise your consumption is going to be crazy high. Yeah. Okay. And his scanning line specs say that the machine uses, uh, as an example, 35 pounds per 100 cases of 12-ounce cans. Does he need to translate that into a SCFM, or is there some other way that he should go about determining the size of the drop from his CO2 header for various pieces of equipment? No. Uh, good point. So, one of the points that I... Uh, this uh, brewer needs to find out is a lot of specifications are set by a typical condition. They say, well, you're going to use this much CO2 at 100 PSI pressure and uh, zero degree Fahrenheit, for instance. Uh, that is condition, but I, then you realize that, uh, well, my pressure is not 100, it's 90, and uh, the temperature is rather warm because at the moment it goes to bottling hole, I'm 80 pounds. So, rule of thumb, the higher the temperature of the gas, the more volume you get and the less consumption pounds or kilogram wise you're going to use. So, I usually recommend that the breweries that are, they need to have a line, especially no insulated. There's people that are, they don't like the dripping uh, and they insulated, but uh, if, if the line get gains heat, you heat up the gas, you're going to use uh, less CO2 and you're going to be more efficient in your canning or bottling line. The colder the gas, you're going to consume because uh, you're right. When you have a diameter, you're, you're using a typical flow or cubic uh, feet per minute. But when you're running gas with this cold, the density of the mass that is going you're putting more mass in the same volume. That applies on the co totally contrary and opposite when carbonation, because in carbonation, you don't want to sabotage your carbonation process. You want to have the CO2 as cold as possible because 
carbonation is a function of pressure and temperature. The lower the pressure, I mean, sorry, the lower the temperature, the better the carbonation. So what I'm trying to convey here is when you try a line or bringing a line from CO2 to consumption, make sure that at the first user is your carbonation because it's the one that is going to get the colder gas. And then the piping continues. And because it's a, a piping, it's going to start gaining heat. The other uses like BBTs or, or fillers, a can, bottler, or whatever, they're going to get the warmer gas should be at the end of the line. All right. Very good. How about, um, how about some typical pipe materials and sizes for, for that distribution system around the brewery? If you're outside in the yard, uh, basically, one of the, my recommendations is the following. The most efficient way to transfer fluids, in this case, vapor CO2, is at high pressure. There's a lot of people that are, uh, because they buy CO2, the CO2 supplier, they give you a vaporizer, which is an electric heater with 20 or 40 kilowatts, it's a, which is crazy. Uh, you're applying more power just to vaporize instead of gaining any benefit. And they, ha they have a pressure reduction station uh, coming downstream the vaporizer, and you're 500 feet away from the consumption point. So what is happening is they're forcing you to use a wider pipe, two inches, for instance, just to keep enough buffer in the line of, of mass of, of CO2 pounds in the moment of you have a startup of all the fillers, all the can, uh, canning machines, you, you, you will have not a hiccup of supply. But if you remove that uh, pres uh, pressure reduction station and move it all the way as close as possible to consumption point, you can transfer all the CO2 at pressure tank, could be 250 to 300. It's super efficient. And then you just drop it just before your users. Your users, they consume CO2 uh, or, or 100 PSI or lower. So my point is, uh, if you're has the, the run the run installation you're going to pay more because you're going to have a wider piping uh, two inches and then if you're running a, 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 a typical small brewery of 100,000 bar, uh, barrels per year uh, you're going to need a, a two inch pipe if you're running at very low pressure 100 but if you're running a pressure tank you just need a, a actually a three quarter but in some cases it's difficult to find a one inch piping and that makes a difference I'm, I'm telling you that it's, it's good to know if you're going to do the investment. If you already have the piping and, and the brick and mortar and things like that, well, perhaps there's no a lot of way to get, uh, to reduce costs. But uh, if you're going to change it, please make sure that uh, your pressure reduction station is as close as possible to consumption point. You know, a lot of, okay, probably all small brewery budgets have been impacted by the pandemic. To what extent could a very small brewery just get away with using braided hose? That, that, is, that is great uh, uh, because these days we need to be creative in order to look for cost reduction. You can use hoses uh, as long as make sure that uh, they are sanitary. Remember, so the, we, we cannot use, uh, even those braided, make sure that it's a, for sanitary application or for food grade applications. You can use that. Uh, 
and has the flexibility that uh, you can twist it, move it, and uh, around it. Uh, pipings uh, will be the more appealing uh, for aesthetic, but it's not needed. So these days, if you can get away with hoses, go ahead. Please be my guest. It is a smart approach. Just make sure that you're using the right type of hose. Our friend says he's overwhelmed by all the options for regulators. Do you have any uh, advice when it comes to sourcing regulators for brewery applications? Yes, sir. And uh, I'm going to be a little bit uh, devil's advocate here because uh, I don't want to sound super simplistic, but uh, here is the situation. Usually, all your equipment, your fillers and uh, canners, or, uh, they already have the regulators uh, in the CO2 connection. So even a small canner, small bottle filler, even a cake filler, they, they have a regula- incoming regulator. So, and and those fillers, they are assuming that uh, you're going to supply uh, CO2 at 100 or 120 PSI, and they're going to drop it to the pressure they need it. So long story short, it's make sure that uh, you only, at least you have a big enough regulator that is going to drop from the pressure tank to 50 or 300 down to 100, and you can put it as close as possible to the consumption point. A uh, couple things. Remember, you're using an ingredient. There are uh, some uh, rather uh, cheap regulators. The only thing that uh, you need to make sure that uh, the internals of the regulator are compatible with CO2 use because uh, you don't want to start getting funky uh, flavors or aromas because uh, it's carbon steel internals and you may have some uh, moisture pickup and you're going to have problems with that. So that's Two, the two things that you need to do is one big regulator with the volume enough to supply all your users and make sure that the internals are compatible with CO2 users. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll jump in and add to Gabriel's uh, statement about the um, regulators. You know, as a small brewery, every dollar means something. I mean, it means something to every brewery. However, every dollar is so tight and you have to make sure you're utilizing your dollars correctly uh and it's so easy um for a lot of us coming from coming from our garages into these industrial settings just to say hey i'm just going to use this cheap regulator or find a regulator from a cheap supplier and you know we've been cahaba has been around since 2011 and you know we're now just short of 7000 barrels a year and it you can just through that through this time i can tell you that spend the money on the good quality products, the good valves, the good regulators, because they're going to last longer. They're going to give you the flow that you, you're expecting, um, the flow that you want, and they're going to give you the consistency you're looking for rather than coming in the next day, expecting this tank to be carbonated and good because your regulator said everything was going to be good and ready to roll. And you come back in the next day and the regulator, even though it's reading whatever PSI, it was not flowing anywhere near that. Uh, so now you've lost an entire 12 to 16 hours worth of carbonation and it pushes everything else back. And again, in any industrial setting, in any of these breweries, you know, losing time is losing money. So to spend the extra $20, the extra $40 on the good regulators to, to, to make sure that if you're making a quality product, you have quality products helping get you there. 
That's a good point. And I, I ran into some issues years ago. I don't remember the specifics, but sort of there's a distinction between like a, a high flow regulator and a, and a normal flow regulator, right, Gabriel? That is correct. That is correct. And a, a, a little bit oversized regulator is going to give you two benefits. First of all, it's going to make sure that in any kind of spike in consumption or startup of a line, you will have enough uh, mass flowing through that. Otherwise, uh, if the, 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 the regulator is a low flow regulator. You're going to choke the flow. You're going to have a block of ice. And, and, and as uh, Eric just mentioned, you're, you're going to lose the uh, production hour, which is a lot of money in a brewery. That is correct. So uh, thank you, Eric, for, for jumping in, in that comment. I believe that I uh, uh, pay a little bit extra. Make sure that you have a capacity. When you calculate your consumption, don't be tight. You estimated that your consumption is going to be regulated for, I'm going to use a number, 100 pounds per, per, per minute. So um, try to go 150. You need a little bit, 50, 60% lead way just in case to prevent any future growth, but most importantly, any sudden spike in consumption, like a, a, a sudden pickup. So you don't want any any anything choking or or uh, reducing your capacity to to properly produce a high quality product. That was a real all-star cast here on the Master Brewers podcast. You just heard from Mark Fisher, Jeff Carter, Eric Meyer, Gabriel Dominguez, and one of my favorite people in this industry, Dave Thomas. It may be hard to believe, but after about an hour, we've only just scratched the surface on this topic. If you want to learn more about CO2 systems, you should spend more time with Gabriel. Gabriel is one of the many outstanding lecturers who present during the Master Brewers Brewery Maintenance Systems course, which as I mentioned during the break, is both all virtual and heavily discounted this year. The only thing missing this time is the Madison cheese curds. Check the show notes for a link to information about the course. Look, I know you're probably zoomed out and totally sick of virtual this and virtual that. I know I am. But WBC Connect is not just another virtual conference. This is a meeting that I usually drop everything for because it's the most serious international gathering of technical brain power in our industry, and it only happens once every four years. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you're crazy not to attend at least part of this. Registration for WBC Connect is now open with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details or check the direct link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. Master, 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 master.